Hello and welcome back to The Distracted Gardener. I am Charlie, The Distracted Gardener, and I hope you're doing well wherever and whenever this episode finds you. It's been a somewhat eventful week in these parts over the last week. I made the mushroom bucket that I mentioned last week, though I'm sad to say that due to how much time it took to prepare the hay substrate and needing to help prepare my house for construction, I didn't have time to shoot a video. Uh, the biggest sort of roadblock to making a video was needing to pasteurize the hay. Um, and I had to do it in kind of two bouts because I needed a much larger pot than I had to pasteurize it in. So I had to pasteurize it in kind of, like I said, two bouts or, or split it into two basically. And it took like an hour and a half per per chunk of hay. And so that was like three hours just to pasteurize the hay. And then, like I said, uh, we're doing some construction, so I needed to help with cleaning up before that happens. Uh, that said, although there will not be a video, unfortunately, there will, however, be a blog post on the construction and progress of my little oyster farm, excuse me, oyster mushroom farm, uh, probably sometime next week over on com. Besides that, what's going on? Uh, I also started a second wave of seeds, and with the chamomile and oak leaf red lettuce already sprouting from that set of seeds, I'm yet again feeling energized for the season to come. And I think that leads us nicely into today's topic, which is how do we energize and inspire the young to have an interest in gardening and in nature? When I was a kid, I did a lot of stupid stuff. When I think about it now, some of the things I did were cruel and unnecessary. How many ants did I need to stomp? I remember capturing ants and other sort of insects, and I thought that I would, I would um, put them inside of, how, how can I best explain this? There's Legos, you know, and there's Legos that are clear. And inside of it, of course, there's like the, there's a space for, for the other Lego to go, right? Like the peg space, right? And then around that, there's empty space. So I used to like to, to capture these little blue bugs that I have no idea what they were and put them inside of um, inside of that Lego and kind of keep them as pets until, of course, uh, naturally they they died, you know? And I remember also using magnifying glass to, to burn a variety of things, including just, you know, holes into plant leaves for whatever reason. And it really embarrasses me knowing that I did those things now, I have to say. Though I don't know that I can, I'm, you know, I need to feel guilt or responsibility for the actions of the six-year-old version of of me. At any rate, I think what those actions point to is the fact that I had no concept, firstly. The fact that other living things are in fact living and have a right to, to life. Uh, second, I think I had so very little idea even until my teen years, or maybe even later than that, that everything has a role to play in the grand scheme of things, right? Nothing is, even mosquitoes, which everybody always says, everybody always says, you know, mosquitoes, what is their purpose? They just, they're just annoying and they just suck blood, but of course they have a purpose. You know, every everything, even the annoying stuff, of course, uh, is here within this whole, this whole system of everything playing a role. And, you know, lastly, I had absolutely no idea when I was a distracted troublemaker of how great it can be to grow something. I'm now in my mid-30s, though turning 37 next week, I guess I need to say late 30s. 
As I said before, the years since starting to garden have been transformative. I'm left feeling like I want to personally do more, grow more, help more. Uh, as a teacher, I get to see how children think about and feel about the natural world um, quite a bit. I see what I think to be a really troubling reality, uh, which is that most children are much more interested in playing Animal Crossing and Splatoon than they are in playing outside with friends. I think one of the great, could we even call it an irony? I suppose that is an irony, but one of the great ironies of this sort of um, Animal Crossing New Horizon age, if the age even still continues, is there are so many kids I know, including family members and also students who who can list off, you know, um, these very specific insect names that they learned by playing Animal Crossing, you know, uh, praying mantises or whatever the case may be. But you ask them if they've ever seen an insect or, or, or for example, I sometimes take my kids to the park and if we see one of these actual insects in real life, they're so turned off, revolted, scared, whatever you want to say. And of course, you know, I, I see this and I feel like there's so much room for me to step in, so much room there for me to step in, excuse me, help educate and help inspire kids to be more mindful of the creatures and also appreciative or interested. I'm not sure exactly how best to put it, you know, of these creatures that are around them and also to teach them where their food comes from. My goal, I suppose, is to at the very least help shape future adults into stewards as opposed to overlords, you know, and to help build a few young people into lifelong gardeners, if not conservationists, you know, uh, entomologists or whatever the case may be. The first goal, shaping kids into future stewards, is something I've been working on, albeit in a nearly passive way since opening my school with my wife and having control of the school curriculum um, a few years ago. One thing I've noticed in these 10 years teaching is that kids are really quick to stomp. What was a spider is soon transformed into a pancake. A single flying bee is met with scared faces and screams. And, you know, try, try mentioning the frogs at frequent local rice patties to, to my students and you either get a face of disgust or you get like, oh my god, like, why are we talking about frogs? Or, you know, and then, you know, every now and then there's like, there's like one kid who's like, oh yeah, frogs are, frogs are cool, they're cute, I like them. But mostly, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a reaction of revolt, I suppose. And, you know, the feeling I've had for some time is that most children greet most wildlife with fear or disgust. This is, of course, a great overgeneralization. There are plenty of kids interested in bugs and crayfish and other creatures. I think, at least compared to my hometown, it seems much more likely for kids in Japan to take an interest in wildlife. And then they immediately try to capture that wildlife, which, you know, when I, when I was a kid growing up in western new york most of the kids i knew who had anything to do with wildlife were out trying to shoot it so you know i guess i guess i can't judge too harshly but as for here when summer comes around you'd be hard pressed to find a department store not selling nets and plastic enclosures for the various beetles and other beasties kids like to hunt uh, during the warmer months it's 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 such a common sight driving around biking around walking around whatever and, you know, walking past a rice paddy and seeing, like, a couple of kids with a couple of nets and a couple of plastic containers down in the rice paddy looking for, like, a, a crayfish or um, when the cicada season starts later on in the summer, you'll see kids, you know, swatting at trees to kind of capture cicadas and, and put them in their little containers so they can take a look at them for a while. You know, a number of kids, too, like to capture caterpillars and raise them up to butterflies and that kind of thing. 
I'm reminded sort of of a personal story here. A few summers back, I went to the beach with my family. Uh, Fukui, by the way, has a number of nice beaches. Almost none of them are sandy, at least the ones that I usually frequent. There is one, I think it's called like Mizushima, and um, it's a it's a white sand beach, but I think most of the sand is actually carried in, so that's a whole thing that we don't really need to get into. Anyway, it's good if you want to come for beaches. Um, they're beautiful, and the water is, uh, is you know, it's great. Uh, it's, it's really refreshing to dive into, and it's also usually clear enough to, you know, strap on a pair of goggles and do some diving and look around at some at some local fish um, without much trouble. Uh, my nephew caught a juvenile rockfish called kasago in Japanese and put it in one of the aforementioned plastic containers and watched it for a while. And I was sort of, I think at the time, maybe I was sort of new to, to family gatherings and I didn't want to push too much by, by, you know, being like, oh, well, put the put the freaking fish back in the water you know but that, that was basically my feeling but anyway uh eventually as children do uh you know after he watched it swim around for a while and tried to feed it you know lettuce or whatever um the the leafy stuff was he pulled from from the food that we had brought to eat you know eventually his his attention went elsewhere and the rockfish was left in the deoxygenating water in the hot sun and I think you can imagine what ended up happening to the fish and it wasn't the first time that I thought when I have my own kids I'm going to sort of ban that practice it just really drives me crazy especially since since getting into all of this to see like I don't know like why why you have to capture everything and I don't know why why people are so forgiving of it like I mean maybe I do know like I, I get I get kind of like the idea oh it's just a butterfly like why not why not grab it and look at it for a little while and then you can set it free and you know I grew up fishing a lot with my mother and it's something I really enjoyed but thinking about uh, or I guess I started thinking about it when I started to get older when we were still fishing is like you know a lot of those fish like even if we weren't catching them to eat like you know catch and release kind of thing like a lot of them end up dying just because you touch them and you wipe off their slime coat and all that kind of jazz so it's just something that I really, I guess I really just don't like, but maybe I'm being, I don't know if I'm being curmudgeonly or if I'm being, <laughs> anyhow, who knows how many insects, fish, and, and other types of animals, you know, have had similar ends as that uh, rockfish that I mentioned. You know, in, in some ways, I think you could get away with it before the huge dips in wildlife populations, you know, like 50 years ago or 60 years ago, and especially then, right, where there's nothing else to do, like it's a little bit more understandable, and you know, to a certain extent, like 50 or 60 years ago, it's so much harder to see something without without going outside or capturing it and taking a look at it. But now there's so many pictures, there's so many videos, there's just so many sources of information that it just seems like such a cruel and wasteful and more, you know, uh, more than ever a damaging sort of thing to do to these already struggling wild populations. And so, you know, what are we to do? I've said I'm a teacher but I'm an English teacher. And so, you know, I'm trying to think about what I can do uh, while, while fulfilling my duties as an English teacher, right? Because of course, that is my, that is my charge. Uh, it's also my business. So I have to think about that. But I'm wondering, what can I do that is, is, uh, you know, will allow me to complete that goal, uh, my professional goal, while also uh, allowing me to to make a change somehow you know the first step I think 
is making animals not seem so mysterious. Bees, for example, seem like almost abstract concepts to kids. A bee is a fuzzy, hovering harbinger of doom. They sting. They sometimes make low, disconcerting humming noises in your ears. They are, when thought of in these simple terms, in these simple ways, you know, entirely unpleasant little things. What if, though, we can connect bees to something that's more important to kids? 70% of the most widely eaten food crops rely on pollinators such as bees. Foods like apples, oranges, coffee. One of my little girls, that is to say one of my students, is said to eat uh, whole packs of strawberries by herself. This is something I learned very recently from her mother. Uh, strawberries, of course, have perfect flowers and so can self-pollinate, though bees still do a lot of work because even if you have a perfect flower, it's not guaranteed that those, uh, those male and female parts will work together 100% of the time, and so pollinators like bees fill in gaps and manually pollinate flowers that fail to do it by themselves. In this situation, right, a bee to a little girl that loves strawberries can easily become a friend. I'm working on some picture books to use in my classes that show how bees and other pollinators help to make the foods that little kids and we bigger kids would have to go without without our insect friends. I should say when I talk about picture books and making them, it's uh, you know, it's probably on white paper and uh, let's just say I'm not an artist, but I'm going to do my best. One other thing I try to do whenever we have a chance is to invite the children to look at the insects that sometimes find their way into the classroom and because we're kind of in an older building they kind of find their way in quite often. Usually they're things like crickets, spiders, spider ants, and bees. And you know, as I said, kids like to just oh my god, the the speed, the speed, the the veracity, not the what am I trying to say? Veracity. Alacrity. What a wonderful word is alacrity that kids have when they're trying to just like get towards something they think needs a smushing. But, uh, you know, when I see that, when I see kids try to grab or, or smush, you know, I try to teach them to think of themselves as the spider or as, you know, whatever it is they're trying to smush. And, you know, do, do they want, if it were them, would they want to be grabbed suddenly or stepped on? And sometimes we see butterflies outside the school and kids will try to catch them. And in those situations, we try to teach kids that it's okay to look and have questions. But if you like the creature, the best thing you can do for it is to just like it with your eyes. Not touch it so much, you know. Uh, because again, like if we go back to that example about fishing, like a lot of times it's the touching that, you know, even if you're being the most gentle person in the world, that's going to end up doing a, a lot of damage. Uh, most, most children, right, don't set up with malice. Smushing an ant or swatting a bee is something they've never been told not to do, or they don't understand why they shouldn't do it, or it's a behavior they've seen others do and are simply emulating it, you know? The answer, I think, as is so often the case, is just education. And here I have to admit, this, this part, this part is, um, is uh, a little bit of a mystery to me, because I'm not sure, for now exactly what the best way is to to help kids understand both the importance and the role of of insects right and i think the best thing that i can do for them is, is help them to understand that insects for the most part are friends and um, they should be treated as such but I, I have to admit that i'm not really too terribly sure about how to go about it so i would very much like to ask any of you out there who who have some ideas of how I can work this type of education in my classes. 
some activities we can use, anything like that. If there are any ideas you have, I would love for you to let me know. Um, it would really, it really mean a lot to me. But basically, I'm taking the same approach when it comes to flowers, fruits, and vegetables as well. I'm hoping that a bit of knowledge will lead to a lot of interest. We have a very small garden space at the school, enough for a few peppers, tomatoes, and flowers. Probably total, what is that? Maybe two feet by 10 feet and two feet by 10 feet. So, so two, two spaces of about 20 square feet, I guess. I would say, I would say that's about right. And so yeah, you know, we have enough to do a little bit with. And from, from the new year, uh, that is to say the new the new school year over here, which is uh, starts from April, we're going to be dedicating a chunk of the space to student gardening. And I have probably thousands of marigold seeds that I harvested from my garden over the last couple of years, so we're going to be using those. And my wife's grandmother donated a few dozen clay pots to us the other day um, and some seed starting mix she wasn't going to use when we were cleaning out some stuff the house for the aforementioned uh, construction the other day. So we're going to have the kids decorate their own planters, sow some seeds full of marigolds, you know, marigold seeds, and take care of them on the days that they come to class. Once the marigolds size up, the students will be able to take them home. I'm not sure yet what will grow, but I, I kind of want to repeat the process in the fall uh, with something edible. I'm thinking maybe lettuces or, but lettuces are sort of boring, you know, at, at least for a kid, it's sort of boring, right? Like I think it's kind of interesting having like a come and cut again kind of thing, but I, ha I have to imagine it might be a hard sell for, for a first or second grader. I'm thinking maybe like radishes or carrots because it's, I think it's so exciting, <laughs> at least for me, to pull like a radish or a carrot out of the ground, you know? It's just such a satisfying thing. But anyway, I'm not I'm not really sure uh, what we're going to go with just yet. At any rate, I'm hoping that by doing so, uh, my students will have a greater connection to their food, understand the resources required, and a bit of the work required too. I'm already certain that this approach will work. Um, I tried it out with a few students last year. We do like, um, we do like one class that's sort of teaching, basically exclusively teaching um, other subjects in English, so um, science and, and art and history and stuff like that. And anyway, we, we tried out this kind of thing in that class and the students grew their own carrots and it was very successful. Everybody got to take home a pretty good sized bag of carrots, uh, baby carrots. But what was really amazing about that was that a few of the girls who claimed that they didn't like carrots before we grew them, suddenly that they had their own and they grew their own and they harvested their own they suddenly liked the carrots, you know, and I, I think I think that sort of speaks to a lot of what I'm trying to do and what I think I can do by sort of trying to put in a little bit of effort um, in these classes. Logistically speaking, it's hard to have the kids constantly growing things, harvesting them and taking them home. We need to stay focused on the main goal, which of course is learning English, but I want to do as much as I can here. I'm hoping by attracting more pollinators to the school garden by having more flowers, a water feature, and a variety of different plants, the kids will be able to get in touch with nature and have a unique chance to use some unique language. You know, I think one of the things that we try to do, of course, in class is use uh, realia, which is basically, you know, using real, real things to teach language, not just using flashcards or whatever. And, you know, I think... Um, how wonderful would it be to be able to teach about insects using insects that are just chilling out outside the garden, you know? That's that's sort of like my my dream, and not just the insects, but of course the plants and stuff like that. 
so that's sort of where my mind is at, I suppose. And I guess that's where we'll leave it for today. I have to admit that I'm towards the start of really thinking about what sort of things I can do with my students to inspire them to love nature and to have an interest in the garden. At the very least, I'm hoping to create an interest in them about where their food comes from. But I would like to open it up to any parents, fellow children's teachers, science communicators out there. Please, please, please share any ideas you have. You can find me at Natural Fukui on Instagram, Twitter, and Threads. You can also find my blog at naturalfukui.com. Any ideas you have about how to incorporate this into sort of this English teaching environment, um, any sort of lessons that you've used that you found are successful, if you're a teacher or if you're a parent and you've done stuff at home, I would really love to hear what sort of things you've had success with. Um, it would really sort of help me out in this mission here. So thanks so much for listening. Until next Monday then.